Good evening, ladies and gentlemen of the Dharma. <laughs> uh, when we first uh, got together here on Sunday night, uh, Sylvia mentioned that we chose this particular time of year for our interfaith retreat because of the season, the proximity to Passover and to Easter, which are such holy times uh, in the year for Christians and Jews. And someone in one of the uh, interview groups that I attended uh, said that she was going to have a Seder next week, a week from tomorrow, I think, is the first Seder. And she said she was going to have a Seder with uh, many Jews in attendance, as is usually the case, but also a number of devout Christians were also going to be there. And she, uh, she said, asked me if I had any advice for her about how to conduct the Seder. And uh, I said to her, uh, if, if Jews could ever uh, maybe get over the wounds from 2,000 years of anti-Semitism, something that's not too easy to do, actually, and understandably, but if they could, and, and if Christians could get over the idea that, that Christianity is is the, is the true Judaism. <laughs> you know, the, 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 the real meaning and destiny of Judaism is actually Christianity. If, if Christians could get over that idea, which is also not that easy to do, then I think that uh, Jews and Christians would open their eyes and notice how similar uh, they are to one another, how close these traditions are to each other they contain, to a great extent, the same religious themes. Uh, they contain uh, many of the same practices and observances. They even share, uh, to some extent, the same scriptures. So it's no accident that uh, Passover uh, comes at the same time of year as Easter. Sometimes people say, what a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> It's really odd that that is the case. But it's not really a coincidence uh, because uh, Jesus actually wasn't a Christian. <laughs> he was a Jew celebrating Passover at the time of his uh, passion and the story that we all know so well. It took place, uh, the Easter story took place during Passover. And, and it was not, uh, I think, just a coincidence that that was the case. Uh, the, the fact that it was Passover figures importantly into, in the Gospel story. And also, uh, the meaning of the passion of Jesus is really the same meaning uh, as the story of redemption from Egypt uh, in the Hebrew Bible. Egypt, as uh, Sylvia told us last night, which means the narrow place uh, my apologies to any Egyptians that there may be in the room. doesn't really mean Egypt, the nation-state that people live in. It means uh, metaphorical, spiritual Egypt. So this is the story uh, of a people and their uh, tremendous suffering and redemption. And this same story is repeated uh, in Christ's passion, which is the story of one person 
who is God, or maybe the God who is each person, and that one person's tragic suffering and redemption. It's really the same story, which is why it happens in, at the time of Passover. So I'm saying all this because what I want to talk about tonight is that story. I want to go into some detail about that story in, in the Bible. I want to give a reading of that biblical story in the light of our meditation practice. I want to interpret it from the standpoint of what we learn on our cushions, and not only what we learn on our cushions, but what we have come to understand through our experience in life as the shape of the spiritual journey. So, people have been reading this story for a long time, and there's lots of different interpretations, but uh, tonight I want to offer one. So, uh, there's, this is a great moment, you know, this one of the great moments in human imagination. Among all the great moments of human imagination, this moment uh, at the Red Sea is one of the great moments. So here we see this people, 600,000 people, it says, who are standing there in front of this raging sea with all their possessions in bundles on their backs, facing the turbulent, dangerous sea. Behind them, the, the onrushing Egyptian charioteers. This is what we call a moment of no escape, no exit, a disaster. You know, uh, what do they say? The, the frying pan and the fire. So that's, uh, maybe you have experienced a moment like that sometime. At that moment of no exit, absolutely no way out, there is a sudden and completely unexpected breakthrough. The sea parts, the people push through, they can't believe this is happening, and the water, waters close behind them and their pursuers perish. So that's, that's the story, that's the dramatic moment that we have all heard about. And we always think of this as a historical or political tale, which it is in part. But the genius of the uh, Torah, the, the Hebrew Bible, is that it operates constantly on many levels at the same time. And so it's possible, and it might even be necessary for us to read the Exodus story not only as this maybe historical event, but uh, as a personal event, as a spiritual event, as uh, some kind of description of spiritual liberation, spiritual breakthrough. Maybe this is one powerful moment of the soul's breakthrough that's been recorded for us, that happened a long time ago, but that also happens again and again and again. Every, every year when we repeat the story, and actually every day, maybe even every moment 
of our life. That moment when one suddenly recognizes that chilling, impossible existential moment when you're standing there between uh, the restless, relentless pursuer and the forbidding sea. So breakthrough is great. It's really exciting. Uh, maybe some of you have experienced moments of breakthrough in your meditation practice or in your lives otherwise. That, that giddy feeling that you have when all of a sudden what seemed impossible all of a sudden opens up to you and a path appears in front of you that wasn't there a moment ago and it didn't seem even possible that it could be there. After the breakthrough moment when you calm down and slowly integrate the experience into your life, a life that you can actually live every day, eventually you appreciate uh, what in the end turns out to be more interesting actually than the breakthrough moment even though it might be really great to tell about it later on as a story. But you realize that what's actually more interesting than the breakthrough moment is the path that led to that breakthrough. The days, the weeks, the months, maybe the years, the decades that prepared you for it, even though at the time you didn't know that. Though it may at first seem less clear, less spectacular, and less pleasant, in fact, there's more that you can learn from the struggle than from the victory. And when you consider uh, the Bible story, you know, it doesn't end with the breakthrough moment at the Red Sea. There's many disastrous moments that follow, just as <laughs> in our lives, our brilliant moments of breakthrough are, are often followed by many disastrous moments. So then you realize, well, maybe I should, should be learning from the whole thing and not just focusing on getting the breakthrough moment. So it might be good, uh, to, in reading this story, not to focus on this fantastic moment, but instead to focus on the passages in the Bible that precede it with an eye for those moments of preparation and formation, which turn out to be, in the end, uh, in hindsight, the seeds of liberation. So what are they? So to make some, uh, speak about this a little bit, I'm going to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and summarize the entire thing in a few minutes. <laughs> because uh, in the beginning, you know, of the, of the Bible, what it's really about is it's about life, it's about bounty, it's about trying to establish oneself. It's as if when you stand back and consider what's being said here, the whole narrative is tracing the establishment of the human race that is at, at the time still like a tender shoot, a little shaky, still in search of its place, still in search of its roots. So this theme of fertility and bounty and you know, establishment 
is the whole theme of the beginning part of the Bible. And we follow this little tribe of people, very, just a few of them, just barely getting along. And they're struggling to have children. It's hard to get pregnant. They can't have children, you know, and things like that. They're trying to just survive. And somehow God takes this, these people and makes a deal with them promising that in return for their faithfulness to whatever this unknowable force is, in return for their faithfulness to it, God is going to really establish them, make them plentiful, and they're going to take over the earth. Many of them they have their own country and so on and so forth, which seems at the time unimaginable because there's only a few people. So then follow many disasters, betrayals, a few miracles thrown in. And, and then here's Joseph down in Egypt. He's now a very important official in Egypt. And his family, as you know, they all know the story, comes down to see him. They're escaping from famine and they're lucky that they're brother is a big honcho in Egypt and he provides for them and they, and they live there and they, they get a nice piece of land and they get a job as shepherds. You can be shepherds, you know, because your brother is such a nice person and so helpful. And time goes by and by golly they do prosper and they do multiply and they're doing great. Which disturbs the Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't like this. It's a threat. So he gets alarmed and he decides that he's going to control them by enslaving them. He's going to make them build the great storehouse cities of the empire. But they do this work and they still, there's still a lot of them. Too many. So then he says... Um, okay, we're going to um, get rid of them. Going to kill the firstborn children. Similar thing happens in the story of Jesus, as you remember. So what does all this mean, you know? I mean, we have to understand this as a, an imaginative story. It seems to me that this focus on establishment, destiny, fertility, and so on stands for something more than just physical success. The Israelites are being challenged all the time. They're being tested, called forth into a relationship with something beyond themselves and their self-interest. Like everybody else, they, they see what they need and what they want, but somehow they're constantly being called to go beyond that, to relate to something way bigger and way more mysterious, even unknowable. And, and they deal with it the same way that we probably deal with it too. We sometimes rise to the occasion, sometimes not. We, we stray, we forget, we backslide, we get all tangled up in knots, we come back 
again and again to our old habit of lazy, narrow-minded self-centeredness. Sometimes we even practice meditation to improve our self. It would be good for us. We'll be calmer. Maybe, maybe we'll be more successful in our relationships and so forth through meditation. So this is what happens, finally, to the Israelites. If, if Egypt means the narrow place in their enslavement in Egypt, they're getting more and more narrow. They're getting more, getting more and more crowded into their self-centeredness, crowded into their self-cherishing, self-seeking way of living. And their suffering is growing really strong. And what's, how are they going to get out of this? Now, one thing that's really interesting is in, in the beginning of this story in the Bible, in the beginning of Exodus, when it starts telling this whole story, the people are described as if they were kind of unconscious beings, almost like animals, you know, without knowing what was going on. Because they're suffering a lot, but if you read the text, it sounds like they don't even complain. They don't even know they're suffering. They're just sort of plodding along. And their suffering has no meaning, really. It has no human dimension. They just bear their suffering. They're ground down by it. It's as if they don't even really feel it and understand that they're suffering. And that's where Moses comes in. Because Moses is the first one who actually notices this suffering and finds it painful and unacceptable. And, and it's very interesting that it's Moses who sees this because Moses isn't even suffering. He's living in the house of the Pharaoh and he's sort of not really one of the people. And yet, because he's outside of it, he sees the suffering. And, it, and it, he can't stand it. He, his response to the suffering is to fall, fly into a rage and, and commit murder. This is a bloody, horrible text, isn't it? <laughs> this story. So Moses is not a wise, compassionate person here. He's someone who <laughs> sees suffering and he can't stand it and he lashes out and then he has to flee. He goes out to the wilderness. Uh, for, it turns out, he doesn't know it at the time, but he goes out to the wilderness for purification, for preparation, and, and it's not easy. And later on, the whole people go out into the wilderness for many, many years. And later on, long after that, Jesus goes out into the wilderness, the desert. And after that, the desert fathers go back to the desert. So the desert becomes a kind of a metaphor for stripping ourselves of our whole sense of self, returning to zero, which is not so easy, quite difficult, but it's the preparation we need for liberation. So here's what it says in the text. 
It was many years later, after all this, the king of Egypt died. The children of Israel groaned from the servitude. This is the first time that they notice that they're suffering and that they react to it. They groaned from the servitude. They, they cried out. And their plea for help went up to God. And God heard their moaning. And God remembered his covenant, his, his de the deal he made with Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. And God saw the children of Israel and God knew. That's what it says in Everett Fox's uh, translation. So this passage comes right after the story of Moses fleeing. And, and that moment is the beginning of, of the liberation of the children of Israel. Because in that passage they change from being kind of plodding, oblivious, completely unmindful creatures to creatures, beings who suddenly are mindful of their condition and speak out from their awareness. So it's interesting how this happens. How do they become aware? Nothing happens to them. You know, there's nothing, there's no event in their lives that happens. What happens is, it was many years later, the king of Egypt died. That's what happens. The king of Egypt died. This is really a strange thing. It's as if the people take their suffering for completely for granted. They're, they're buried in it. They can't see it. And they suddenly see it when they notice the death of the king of Egypt. Such a powerful person who builds monuments like a god himself. How could he die? I imagine that in ancient Egypt, the death of a pharaoh must have been an immense psychic event. There must have been parades, ceremonies, pageants, more buildings built, big sacrifices, a complete turning upside down of all of daily life, and it surely would have been noticed even by the lowly slaves. For hundreds of years, these slaves were content in their narrow lot, suffering without any aspiration, without even knowing that they were suffering, until the all-powerful Pharaoh falls. They must have been amazed by this. They must have been shocked and horrified by it. And it must have reminded them of the vulnerability of even the great. Maybe they were terrified of what might happen next to them. Or maybe they even felt sorrow. But something happened outside of themselves is the point. Outside their own suffering, something happened and it woke them up, and they saw themselves for the first time. And they saw their own suffering, 
maybe more deeply than Moses saw it because they were inside of it and he was outside of it. So somehow they saw something deep about the truth of human suffering. Something deeper than you can see just from your own suffering. You understand? More than you can see from your own suffering when you look. They saw, I think, the suffering and they understood their own situation in the light of that tragedy. And you know, this is the same with the Buddha. You know, the Buddha didn't his past also started with suffering, but not his own suffering. He saw the suffering of others. And he knew that was his suffering too. But it was the suffering of others that woke him up to begin his, the path toward his liberation. And that's the same thing that happens here. So this is the first awakening. This is the first real step on true liberation a deep appreciation of one's own suffering, but not with anger or resentment, and not with a sense of chagrin and embarrassment or bitterness about one's own personal situation. Rather, the recognition that one's own suffering is shared and is deep. An understanding that the suffering is not because of my own stupidity or bad conditions or something like that. But feeling and understanding and knowing that suffering is unavoidable, deeply tragic, deeply human, deeply connected, and deeply ingrained in the nature of who we are. And that's what the people finally realize. And then what happens? They start groaning and crying out for help. They, they open their mouths. Some intention, some volition comes from them and they, and, they, and they express themselves. They express their pain. Because once you see this suffering, tragic side of our living, you can't just sit there and do nothing. You can't be passive. You have to go forward. But if you're a slave, what are you going to do? You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're just a mere human being, <laughs> what can we do? How are we going to stand up in the face of this immense problem? What do we do? Well, you can plead, you can groan, you can express your heart. And so that's what happens. There's expression. The people express themselves. They sort of, in a sense, what they do is they speak out their truth into the void. They speak out their pain and anguish, you know, this way. Not, not to somebody who they think is going to help them, but into the vastness. And when they speak out with, this, with, the, with the truth of their own pain, 
and, and, and the understanding of their own powerlessness, something miraculous starts to happen. And this happens to us too. When we cry out, the listening ear of reality responds to our cry. Something stirs and the world begins to shift. And even though it, nothing apparently happens in the story, nothing happens at this moment, but the energy of liberation is set in motion at that time. When we touch our suffering, our real human suffering, and when we find the heart to express ourselves, something shifts in the world. And as the text says, hearing those groans, God hears those groans, God remembers, God sees, God knows. It's very striking, these verbs, you know, in the, in the Hebrew text. People recognize the real nature of their own suffering, they call out, and there's a hearing, there's a responding, there's a remembering, there's a seeing. So in a way, it's not God who's the boss here. God responds to the people. It's the people who come in contact with their own suffering and who have the courage to speak out in, out of their suffering. It's because of that speaking out that God becomes activated and God stirs and, and God fans this very small flame of aspiration until it will inevitably lead to this moment at the Red Sea that we spoke about in the beginning. So this is, I think, very, a deep truth. It, it's one of the deepest spiritual truths, I think, that a true awakening, the path toward liberation begins with a true awakening to the human condition of suffering, which is not an abstraction, not something that we read in the paper, it's something personal and at the same time universal. And that we're connected emotionally to this suffering so that we speak out, not complaining or whining, but speaking out with a stronger, clearer voice. And then that speaking out always finds a response in the world. And this is how liberation always takes place. And right after that verse that I just read you, the very next thing that happens is God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And now things are really being set into motion. So now I'm, I'm just taking, you know, select little parts, but now I'm going to flash forward a little bit to the night before uh, the, the Exodus, the night before. And another, uh, I, I, I actually am aware of, uh, this is hard to tell this story in a meditation retreat when we're all so tender because there's so many disastrous things that happen, but... Oh, well, I guess we can take it. Um, 
So it says here in the text, uh, in, in the verses uh, 29 and 30, it was the middle of the night, the middle of the night, yud heh which is the name in the Hebrew Bible for, for God, which maybe you, some of you know that this name uh, is a, uh, it's actually not a name. In other words, it's a uh, set of four letters which doesn't have a pronunciation or, um, or a particular... It's, it's, it's as if... Uh, the idea is that you have to name God because how are you going to relate to somebody that you can't name? But you can't name God because how are you going to name somebody that isn't a person or a being in the con- any ordinary sense? So this is a big problem. How do you, you have to name for purposes of relation, but you can't name because every name would be wrong, the wrong name. So the way that this is handled in the Hebrew Bible is by giving these four letters, which stands for an unnameable name. It's not a name. But as close as anybody can tell, the, the, the letters yud heh vav seem to mean, possibly, a form of the verb to be, but not in any known tense. Not in the past, not in the future, not in the present, but maybe all those tenses. This is what the word seems to mean. But you can't pronounce it. So usually when you, when you pronounce it, another word is used to call it because it's unpronounceable. So I'm just going to spell it out. yud heh Anyway, it was the middle of the night and yud heh struck down every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And there was a great cry in Egypt for there was not a house in which there was not a dead person. So it's the middle of the night, and now everybody is grieving, right? The Israelites are grieving, the Egyptians are grieving, and grieving always happens in the middle of the night. You know, even when it's day, it's the middle of the night when you're grieving. So here's the Pharaoh, you know, who's lived a life full of you know, arrogance, dominance, monument building, power brokering, brought low by the presence of grief and death that is insurmountable and pervasive. In other words, the Pharaoh, too, faces the facts of life and also faces, like anybody else, his human powerlessness in the face of time and change. So in the middle of the night, he calls Moses and Aaron. He says, okay, Go ahead, take everybody, leave right now. And then he says something amazing. He says, and bring a blessing on me. The Pharaoh's asking them for blessings. He's so laid low by what's happened. He's asking these pathetic slaves for their blessing. So they all get going and ready to go, and they take off. And then it says, a night of keeping watch for Yudhei-Vavhei, a keeping watch of all the children of Israel throughout their generations. This last night before liberation is a night of keeping watch for Yudhei-Vavhei. So this is an amazing moment in the story. You don't really hear about this moment where the Pharaoh and the Israelites are in the same boat, both grieving in the same way 
asking each other for blessings and beneficences. And this phrase, you know, a night of watching, it really moves me because it really seems like our meditation practice. You could say that this is an explanation for what we're doing in meditation practice. It's we're watching, you know, as one, you know, a night watch. Watching for yud hey vav hey, absolute being. Sitting on our cushions, waiting and watching. Sitting in the present moment of breath and body and mind. Not trying to do anything, ultimately. All the many useful techniques that we apply, in the end, we let go of. Once our mind comes to some quiet, we don't, there's no technique. We just sit there in the present moment of being alive, waiting, watching, yudhe vavhe, the beyond, the absolute sense of being, willing to just be there with life as it is, alert, alive. In other words, we're waiting for nothing at all. We're waiting with intense presence for nothing at all, which means we're waiting for yud hey vav hey, which is nothing's immense scope, nothing's final and utter presence. So in the beginning, uh, I was saying that uh, there are lots of levels of reading the Torah. It's an amazing text. And it's true of any text, of course. You could read any text on a lot of different levels. But um, a lot of texts, you, you could read just on the level of the, or what it seems to say, and that would be enough. You could get more, but it would be almost be enough. But in reading this text, the, 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 the plain level is, uh, you don't get that much out of it, because it's just a horrible, bloody story, period, you know, on, on the plain level. And, you know, one of my little sayings is that, you know, Buddhism is a religion of lists, you know, the, the Four Noble Truths, the Five Hindrances, the Six Paramitas, the Ten Bodhisattva Stages, etc., etc. It's a religion of lists. And the Judeo-Christian religion is a religion of tales, stories. Very few lists, you know, just stories, one after the other. There are stories in Buddhism too, but they're stories that are illustrating the lists. <laughs> in Judeo-Christianity, you have no, no lists. The lists are very helpful. You know, that's the trouble. There's no lists. There's only the stories. The stories are very perplexing. Lists are helpful. Stories are perplexing. That's why you can't read the text only on one level. And people do read it on one level, and they hate it. And they run away from it. No wonder. Who wouldn't? <laughs> so you have to read it on lots of different levels. And if you, if you read the Torah only on one level, as I say, it's a, it's a really, it's a disaster. And it's guaranteed to be a misreading. So I'm going to tell you about this, this little tradition that they say that there, they say that there are four levels for, of reading the Torah. And this is uh, 
uh, a tradition of interpretation, although there are infinite levels, but they say there are four levels. And they're called uh, Peshat, which is the plain meaning, Remes, Drash, and Sad. The Peshat, as I say, is the plain meaning, in other words, what the text obviously says, you know, who, who the characters are, what, what happened, when and where, and so forth. So that's the Peshat. Uh, sometimes it's hard to tell what the Peshat is, but it's the plain meaning. Then there's Remes, and a Remes is a mystical level of reading. It's when we bring our heart of practice to bear on the text, finding in the meaning, finding in the text the meaning that is uniquely ours, that comes from our own experience and our own life's journey. And I think this is just as true of uh, the New Testament as well. And sometimes the remez goes in a completely different direction from the Peshat. Sometimes it even contradicts it. It's not unusual. I remember reading a, a saying by um, the poet Kenneth Rexroth, who hated the Bible with a passion. He, he thought the Bible was the most scurrilous text ever known to humankind. And he said, he said well, he, he was writing an essay about the Hasidic movement in Judaism. He said, well, the thing about the Hasids is that they have succeeded in reading the Torah in such a way that it says exactly the opposite of what it actually says. <laughs> Which is often true. Because uh, to, to get the remez, you have to actually completely contradict the Bashat. It often happens that way. The drash is the third level of interpretation, is a reading that includes all sorts of textual operations that might enhance and alter the plain meaning. Different numerical uh, things, uh, etymologies, clever, tricky etymologies, wordplay, uh, a whole bunch of uh, legendary material that, you know, like what really happened is, and then they give you all these stories that uh, don't appear in the Bible. So that's drash. And then sud is another mystical level of reading the Torah that comes from Kabbalistic mystical practices <laughs> and so on. Anyway, the four letters... Peshat, uh, Remez, Drash, and Sod spell in Hebrew the word Pardes, P-R-D-S, Pardes, which means we have the same word in English, paradise. So these four levels of interpretation. So if you, in other words, if you could understand Torah fully with all of its meanings, this would be paradise. Because uh, the text is said to be, in the end, beyond the text. In the end, uh, the letters fly off the page and they dissolve into space. And the whole world is actually the real text. All that happens is actually the text. It's been sort of um, encoded in these words temporarily but they fly off the page in the end. Now, I told you all of that so that I could read you my poem <laughs> called, called Pardes, which is all about this. So I'm going to read you my poem.
The trees bear fruit. The book binds. Like water brimming in the pitchers, poured out steady till no drop remains by a firm hand, a strong arm. The book bears them on through the storm. Treetops twisting, stripped debris, shattered in the violent nights, though the fruit's sweet lingers on the tongue like melody. That's the plain meaning. Beyond that, and embedded in it, like seeds in a winter earth, officially only a thin layer atop a hard, dark mystery below, exactly as deep as the plow turns, the fingers of connection reach forth like hairy roots laterally entangling other letters, heterodox meanings, bits and strands. The third level now of lives, songs, opinions, certainties, wild stories, rewordings, revisions, attempts to harmonize or humanize, upheaval, sickness, fierce mistaken force, the worm in the infinite, how sky reflects the turmoil of the sea, the soul's own sequential poisoning in its reversing desire to crawl out of its own skin, like the famous snake that spoke for it in the orchard that had no hands to reach out to hold. Then the inner turning, the quiet of snow falling on grass and leaf, with a hush beyond speculation and thought, a meaning pressed only into breathing or illuminated in the speechless waters that suck underground into the capillary spaces that open beneath the feet in the winding, uncharted journey of footsteps from one point of darkness to the next. So, we all think we know what's going on. We, we're all pretty good at reading the Peshat of our lives. But uh, that's too simple. There's a lot more going on than we think. The usual name you know, for the human race is Homo sapiens, which is a doubtful terminology. You know, wise persons, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Another name uh, for the human race is uh, Homo religiosa. And that might be a better name. People who practice religion. As I said to somebody, uh, because we're born and because we die, and because we know how to speak and we can understand speech, we have spiritual lives and spiritual needs. Throughout all history, recorded and unrecorded, every people has always practiced some form of religion, and there are thousands and thousands and thousands of religions, even though we usually recite a few that have, that have become dominant there are thousands and thousands and thousands of expressions of human religious life. And no two religions are the same. And now, uh, in modern times, we have a new religion called no religion. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
you know, secular life, which sometimes works out and sometimes doesn't work out to satisfy our spiritual needs. So we have a lot of different religions, with lots of different ways of doing things. But simply to sit down in the midst of the present, an immense, absolute moment of being alive, whatever shape that takes, whatever its content, just to sit down and face being, to be being. This is the bottom line. This is the ground, I think, the zero point of all religious practice. Being is mysterious, awesome, impossible, delightful, huge, paradoxical. So it's not so easy to sit and face that, to really admit who we are and what we are. But when we do, when we're willing to try, I think we're standing on the basic ground of all religious experience and understanding. And this is not Buddhist, and it's not Jewish, and it's not Christian, and it's not Muslim. It just is. And what's really great about it is that since there are no explanations for it, and no words to describe it, we can't fight about it. The true contemplative practice, whatever the tradition it comes from, or whatever lack of tradition it comes from, is always radically tolerant, radically open. And that's why I think it is the best basis for interfaith practice, and that's why if we have an interfaith retreat, what makes the most sense, rather than do a little bit of this religion, a little bit of that religion, a little bit of this religion, why don't we just do this, what we're doing, just sit and face life together in silence. It's the best way to find our commonality as human beings. It's the best way to make peace. When we sit together, we are peace. Then we have to get up. Too bad. <laughs> but there's always, you know, getting up, and you can't be silent all the time. You have to open your mouth. As long as you're alive, anyway, temporarily, you have to get up and open your mouth. And then we're going to have to disagree. <laughs> Which is okay. So disagreement is very interesting and very important. Even though we all want the entire world to be at our beck and call, to always keep our desires and interests completely in mind, to the exclusion of everyone else's desires and interests, even though we all want this and assume that it should be that way, if it were that way, it would be very boring and maddening. It would really be maddening. And not to mention, it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs>
So disagreement is good and we have to enjoy disagreeing with one another and we have to appreciate one another in our disagreements and appreciate the larger space that holds us all the larger space that also may disagree with us from time to time I want to finish with uh, a psalm this is the, my version of the 65th psalm and uh some of you might know this book, but uh, if you, I, I explain in the introduction to it that in the Psalms, uh, you know, there's a big problem with the word God. A lot of people, that word has a lot of freight in the English language. Uh, and so uh, I found it problematic. It's mentioned so many times in the Psalms. Uh, and in English, the word God uh, in, in, inevitably means, has a sense of you know, power and authority is mainly what it indicates. In Hebrew, though, uh, the, in the Psalms, it's not like that. It's mostly, it indicates a tremendous intimacy. So the word God is actually a bad translation for the word used in the Psalms. So what I did is I translated the word yud heh vav and other, with, and other epithets and names for God as uh, you, just that, like, just you. Y-O-U, you, so... Uh, very, only a few times in the whole text that I use the word God. So you'll hear that here. So I'll just read this psalm and then I'll return to silence along with the rest of you. For you, praise waits in Zion. Vows pile up to be paid. All that lives readies to advance to you who hears these words. I'll stop a little aside. Try it sometime. Maybe tomorrow, sometime during walking meditation. Go far away and talk out loud. Even when no one's around, there's a feeling that someone is listening. Because that's the nature of human language. You can stand on the top of a high mountain with no person around for miles and speak and there's a feeling that someone is listening. Try it if you don't believe me. I am weary of the world's crookedness and my own confusions. You will straighten it out and correct it with forgiveness wiping woes away. Happy are those you choose who approach you and dwell in your house who are satisfied with that happiness, the holiness of your house. Terrific deeds of rightness are your answer to our words. You who are the confidence of rock and sea, the faithfulness of mountains, their might and majesty, who guides the roaring of the seas, the pounding of the towering waves, the tumultuous fortunes of nations. Those who dwell in the outermost lands are awed by your daily wonders, the dawning of the morning and the fading of the evening. 
they rejoice in as your body's calling. Your thought of earth is the gathering of her waters, the enriching of her soils. Your brook runs with water, and so you prepare the harvest that feeds life, saturating her furrows, smoothing her ridges, softening her with showers, murmuring the blessings of her growing. Your crown is the ample unfolding of the years. Your body, the presence in physical places. The pastures of the wilderness distill it. The hills of the settlements disperse its joy. The meadows are clothed with flocks, the valleys mantled with grain. The people give voice to it with words. They murmur it, shout it, sing it out. Let's take a moment or two to sit and forget all that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.